Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. I was in my second year of college, 2002. Every time I mention a, a year, I feel like people just take a sigh of relief up here. 2002, when the great epic film, the Jason Bourne trilogy in the film series was born. And I'll never forget going to the movie theater and actually watching myself on screen as I figured out who I was and delivering everybody from evil and, and all kinds of things. Uh, only made $1.6 billion, so just mildly successful in the box office. Um, but as the story opens, it's, it's really, it's truly the narrative and the plot seriously, of the, uh, of the Bourne's movies, is, is just amazing. Uh, it opens up on the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. It's a dark and a stormy night. There's waves crashing all over the place, and some of the f- fishermen, they're on this boat in the Mediterranean Sea, and the fishermen go over and look over the edge, and all of a sudden you see this, just this body floating in the water with this light probing, reflecting that that actually was, in fact, a body on top of the water, and the fishermen bring it in, and lo and behold, it's this guy. And he's unconscious. He's got two gunshots in, the, in his back. And then when he finally comes to, can't even remember who he is, but he's got this little device, and all they can tell is it's, it's a Swiss security box, probably safe deposit box number from a Swiss bank. And from that moment on, this character, Jason Bourne, suffers from this crazy amnesia. He can't remember anything. He comes back. He's, he's, he's alive. He's well. He begins to regain consciousness, to function. And again, he can't remember anything about his past, but he begins to put little pieces together. While he's on that little fisher boat, fisherman's boat, he ties these unbelievably complex fisherman knots that you would have. He's reading coordinates on a map. He's speaking in different languages, but he's terribly and horribly bothered because of all these things that he's remembering. He can't remember the most important thing, and it, and it tears him up that he can do all of these other things, but he literally cannot remember who he is. And for Jason Bourne, nothing mattered as much as knowing who he was. We're in a series on Colossians, and we're going to continue in that this morning. And and Colossians is a book that's all about Jesus. It's about the supremacy of Jesus. It's about the sufficiency of Jesus. In Christ, we have absolutely everything that we need to live a godly life. And more than anything, this tiny little book in the New Testament answers this one probing, terribly important question. The same question that Jason Bourne had to figure out in the series. Who am I in Christ? What is my identity in Christ? And so what we've done is we've divided the book of Colossians into two main sections. We're looking at Colossians 2.6 as our main theme verse. It says this, "'As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him.'" 
And so right from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 6, it's all about what it means to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. The second half of the book is all about walking in Him, applying the truth of who we are in Christ. I've divided it into two sections called Identity Truth, Who Am I, and Identity Transformation, How Do I Now Live Because of Who I Am in Jesus. And here's what I I want us all to understand. It seems counterintuitive, but it is so important for our Christian lives. The greatest crises that you face in life will not be a crisis of money, a marriage crisis, or even a midlife crisis. The greatest struggle beneath all of that at the bottom is one crisis that's more important, that's more detrimental to our understanding who we are than any other crisis. It's an identity crisis. The greatest thing that we can do as Christians, as we walk with the Lord on a daily basis, is understand exactly who we are in Christ. The truths that took place the second that we became believers in Jesus, that we're reconciled, we're chosen, we are loved, we've been shown grace, we are forgiven in Christ. Our significance, our meaning in life, our purpose in life, all goes directly back to Christ and who He is. Every other issue that we struggle with will be because of a failure to appropriate our identity in Christ. And if you can get that down, it'll save you from a thousand lesser evils as we battle sin and and walk in this fallen world. Our true identity as Christians will be found when we stop being who we are and start being who Christ created us to be, and when we appropriate those truths from the gospel. Number one this morning, we're just going to talk about Jesus today, all right? This is one of the highest Christological sections in all of the New Testament. Who is Jesus? Look down at your text. I'm going to reread here verses 15 through 20. This is really the heart of the passage, one of the highest Christological paragraphs in all of Scripture talking about the deity and the humanity of Christ. Verse 15, and I'll read all the way down through verse 20 again. It says that he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's going to be seven unique characteristics of Christ that you're going to see in this one paragraph here, and I I want you to look for those. I'll put them on the screen in just a second. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, stylistically, grammatically, and structurally, these verses in Colossians, verses 15 through 20, stand out from everything else in the context. The main verbs are grammatically distinct from what's before and what's after. There are repeated phrases throughout this one paragraph. And the vocabulary that's seen here is very unique for Paul. In fact, most people argue if if this section of Colossians was actually written by Paul or if he took it from somewhere else. 
Historians will suggest that Colossians 1, 15 through 20 was probably either an early church confession or a hymn that they would have sang together when they gathered together as a church. And I want to start with these verses because everything else in the context of 9 through 23 looks up to verses 15 through 20. Afterwards, everything will look back through 15 to 20. Everything is going to draw us back to these central verses as we study throughout the book of Colossians. First, what I want you to notice is the repeated uses of an absolute adjective, all, everything, or every. Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things, and everything he is preeminent. You'll see these words eight times in six verses. They are a thread that binds this paragraph together in unity. Christ, Christ didn't just create some things. Paul says he created all things. He makes all things new, even in new creation. He isn't just preeminent over some aspects of creation, over just the physical world. He's also preeminent over the spiritual world. Everything, Christ is preeminent. And it's a reminder of the absolute, exclusive, sovereign power and authority of Christ. Verses 15 through 20, also, as I told you before, I have seven unique characteristics of Christ's supremacy. And here they are listed for you. Christ is unique, and he is supreme over everything else because he is the perfect image of God, the firstborn over creation. He's the creator of the universe. There's a shift then to the fourth thing. He's the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the fullness of God, and the reconciler of all things. Structurally, you're going to notice a little bit of a shift between verses 15 and then when it starts again in verse 18. A lot of historians see a great theme in Colossians 15 through 20 here, these verses going from creation to new creation. We're going to overall at the beginning, at the beginning of all things is the eternal nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son is an eternal, is eternal in nature. You see the aspects of the universal creation of God, and then you see the new creation of God in the church getting much more specific. Paul is describing not just who Christ is. Towards the end of this paragraph, he talks about what Christ has done and how he has reconciled all things to himself. But the first description is this. Paul says he is the image of God. And that should take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We get the creation mandate. We find Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The creation of man happened. It's, it's the pinnacle of the creation account. All things were occurring regularly and repeatedly, almost like you're listening to it in a, a repeated fashion on day one. God created day two. God created it. It was good. It was good. Day six is very unique. It's on day six, God did something that he did was unique from all other days of creation. And that is that he created man in his image, in our likeness, is what Genesis says. An image is a bit deceiving, because it's not necessarily talking about the physical aspect of the image of God. It's talking about the spiritual, the metaphorical, even the functional aspect. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Genesis 1.26 tells us much more about the function of the image than the physical resemblance of the image. God created man in his own image, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Ever, ever wonder why, I ask you this question, 
wonder why Jesus did so many miracles over nature. He feeds the 5,000. He calms the sea. He walks on water. He curses the fig tree. He turns water into wine. As the perfect image of God, Jesus had power, dominion over nature. But there's a, there's a major difference between Genesis 1 and the creational mandate given to mankind and Colossians chapter 1. Because in Genesis 1, it says that man was created in the image of God. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the image of God, the perfect image. Not just an image, not just in the image, but God is the perfect embodiment of God. The second description he gives is the, uh, the firstborn of all creation. And that doesn't mean that the sun was created first in time, like we normally think when we see firstborn. Firstborn here means preeminent in rank. It means that Christ has the authority, the rightful claim to the Father's inheritance. Some of you guys have a, a, a cross-reference in the margins of your Bible. You might see a reference there to Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89 is a royal psalm. Verse 27 says this, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. When the son is described as being the firstborn, it doesn't mean that he was born. It doesn't mean that he was created at the very beginning. It means that he had preeminence in rank. He was the most important. In John 1, it tells us that Christ is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, we have a reference here to the Son being the one who created all things. It's not just referring to matter, that which is physical. It's also referring to that which is spiritual in nature, that which is visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, that which is on earth and also that which is in heaven above. And verse 19 has another phrase that says that for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And you have to remember now, and Paul is strategically attacking and rebutting the first century false teaching of his day, right? And one of the main teaching, it wasn't in its full uh, orb and, and complete teaching at that time, but most scholars believe that Gnosticism, the beginning of Gnosticism, was beginning to root in the first century in and around this area of Colossae. And in Gnosticism, it's all about this idea of gaining a special knowledge to men about the spiritual world. There's things that are happening in the spiritual realm. Our job is to understand and to gain knowledge about those things, and that will enable us to live a more full life, a complete life, to have satisfaction, to have enjoyment, to figure out this life, we need this special knowledge that will only come through what the Gnostics believed about that which was immaterial. In fact, one of their teaching was that which is immaterial is good, everything that is material is bad. It was a very dualistic in its foundations and what they taught. What's interesting is that the Gnostics, they didn't reject Christianity altogether. Instead, they pulled bits and pieces of Christianity that they liked out of it. And just like you stuff leaves into a bag when you're raking your yard, 
All of a sudden, you had bits of Christianity, you had bits of this mysticism and this religion, and you were cramming it all together, and lo and behold, a Gnosticism emerged. It was very syncretistic. It was taking one aspect of, today, it'd be, you hear this all the time in our world. It'd be like somebody saying, you know, I believe bits and pieces of, of the Islamic faith. I believe bits and pieces of Christianity. I want to hold on to those. I believe a little bit in Buddhism, and, and I appreciate and like a lot of their system of belief. And we're just going to roll all of that into this big snowball, and we're going to call it Jaredism or Bradism. And it's going to be our, our syncretistic religion. And so they, the Gnostics, what they did is they took bits and pieces, true pieces of Christianity, and they put it in next to all these other religious ideas and thoughts. The Gnostics did not believe that the fullness of deity was found in Christ. The Gnostics believed that in order to understand the spiritual realm, in order to understand the fullness of deity, they could look to Jesus, but they needed more than Jesus. And sadly, again, this is, this is no different than what even a lot of people today who call themselves Christians believe. And just like Genesis 3 Sin tries to convince us that Christ is not enough. We don't just need Christ. We need modern psychology. We don't just need Christ. We need a mystical experience. We don't just need Christ. We need this counseling. We need this philosophy. And all those people are telling you the lie that Christ is not sufficient. And listen, when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of Christ, you're not going to be able to pick up the Word of God and learn how to hammer a nail better. You're not going to learn how to, how to cast a reel when you're doing your fly fishing on the river. What you're going to learn is everything that you need to live a godly life that pleases God. But you don't have to turn to all of those other things to live a life that pleases the Lord for some extra aspect of knowledge that you didn't have with Christ. All those pursuits are telling you that Christ is not sufficient. And with the heart of a shepherd, the Apostle Paul comes along and he says, in Christ is the fullness of God. In Christ you have everything that you need from the divine, all-powerful one. You want knowledge? Look to Christ. You want wisdom? It's found in Christ. You want life? You want satisfaction? Look no further than the person of Christ. And stop looking to all of these other things. And with that, he brings this highest of Christological sections in almost all of the New Testament to a close. Who is Jesus? <laughs> He's the image of God. He's the creator. He's the perfect image of God. In him dwells every form of deity. He is the fullness of God. It begs the question, how do we connect with him? How do we connect with Christ? Look down at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I grew up in the, the suburbs of Milwaukee, and uh, our town wasn't, 
wasn't super big. I think we had like 16,000 people at the time where I grew up, so it wasn't the biggest schools in the state or anything like that. And, and it, was a, it was a little bit of a smaller town, so everywhere that you wanted to go, whether you were driving in a car, going to a practice, doing whatever you needed to do, everything was just a few miles away, right? And so we'd always go to the grocery store. Growing up, it was just a few miles away. Go to school, driven to school, it's just a few miles away. The bus is gonna drive you just a few miles away. Go to practice, just a few miles away. One night, I'll never forget when I was a kid, I, I think it's kind of scarred, seared in my memory. I might have some issues I need to deal with here. I'm going to take them to Christ, because Christ is sufficient. One night when I was, uh, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I remember, is before I could drive the car, and um, I asked my dad, I said, I, I was getting into golf. I was like, Dad, hey, it's, it's late, it's summer night. Will you take me to the golf range? I just want to go a couple hours, drop me off, and then pick me back up. And he said, sure, I'd love to do that. Goes, takes me just a few miles away, right? We go to the range. He drops me off, said, come back two hours and pick me back up. He's like, all right, I got gotcha. you. So go hit some golf balls, make some putts, do some chipping. Saw some of my friends out there, got to talk a little bit. Two hours later, it's getting to closing time. They close the, close the thing at about 9.30 at night. They had lights lit up so you could hit golf balls at night. And so 9.30 rolls around, two hours rolls around. I'm out there by myself, Wisconsin, summer night, no dad. It's just, just nothing, nowhere to be found, no headlights on the horizon. They're shutting it down. I said, okay, no big deal. My house is just a few miles away, right? So I start walking, thinking that there's only one way to come to the range from where we lived and one way to get back. I start walking down the road and thinking I'm just going to look for every single set of headlights, figure out my dad's going to see me walking in the dark. It's going to be great. I've got a big golf bag that I'm slinging. You can't really miss me on the side of the road. So I get about half a mile down the road and still no dad. And I'm thinking it's, it's getting a little bit cold now, even though it's the summer in Wisconsin. It's down to about 60, 55 at nighttime, short sleeves, shorts, all that good stuff. Take about another half mile down the road, and I'm walking through this little parkway section. It's about 25 miles an hour as you drive through there, just preserved parkland around this Root River Parkway, they call it. There's really no, no street lights there, getting really dark. Think, Dad, any time now. Hope you're rolling off the couch, coming to pick me up sometime soon. And I never realized exactly how far a few miles away was until the night that my dad forgot to pick me up because he was sleeping on the couch, and I had to hoof it about four miles back home with this golf bag, right? And it was honestly, as a teenager, I can tell you right now, it was the best thing for me, okay? So don't hold it against my dad. God rest his soul. I needed, he probably should have let me walk many more times than that. You never, you never really know how far something is until you experience that distance at a different level. Right? We never really know how far apart from Christ we are until we see the truth of the gospel and how close he brings us from our sin to a relationship with him, right? It says that Jesus Christ is the great reconciler. <clears throat> Do you see the last of the seven descriptions of Christ in verse 20? 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That key word is going to be repeated in verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We never realize how far we are apart from Christ until we experience that reconciliation and understand the truth of the gospel by faith. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. It's a great thought. He said, there can be no peace between you and Christ while there is peace between you and sin. Again, we never realize that distance between Christ until we see our sin for what it is. Before Paul wrote about reconciliation, he described how far we are separated from God. Look down at verse 21. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. It's interesting of all the ways that sinners are separated from God. What does Paul focus on here? Specifically, he, he arranges this passage and talks about our separation from God in terms of the human mind. And this Greek word really emphasizes not just the intellect or the thinking part of our brain. What Paul is talking about here is a mindset, a disposition, a way of thinking about things. Typically, we think of, of sin in terms of our behavior or our actions. Much more before that, Paul says, and, and he starts talking about sin in terms of our thought life, the ideas, the things that come into our mind. Our sinful actions, then, are the result of a debased mind, God giving us over to those things from Romans chapter 1. Paul describes reconciliation here in three ways in three verses. He talks about our past before reconciliation, our present being reconciled, and the future hope of reconciliation. Verse 21 is the past. Before we were reconciled to God, we were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. The present is verse 22. How we are reconciled, it's by the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary for our, on our behalf. Verse 23 is the future. It's the hope of reconciliation. Reconciliation comes from a family of words that means to change or exchange something. Just as we reconcile our bank statements, we reconcile our accounts, God changes us from one aspect of being um, separated from him, different from him, to now we are united with him in Christ. Paul is stressing that this is a work of Christ. It's Christ's work of reconciliation on the cross for us. And so he, again, he begins to hammer out the heresies of the day. Believers were in danger of thinking that the gospel wasn't enough for them. It wasn't enough that they had this relationship with Christ. Now they needed to turn to something else instead. Later on in chapter 2, verse 20, you're going to read a lot of statements about the Colossians having this tendency to want to go back into the law or back to some other philosophy or back to some other human thought. Chapter 2, even at the end of chapter 2, you read some of those verses. We'll be there shortly. Christ keeps coming back into the picture. He's what brought us into this right relationship with God. We are reconciled to the Father through Christ. He's what sustains us in the Christian walk. He's what provides our basis of, of living a life that is pleasing to God when we rely on him daily. How do we 
connect with the Father, we connect through the reconciliatory work of Christ on the cross. Number three, in our outline number three this morning, why does all of this matter? Who is Jesus? Number one, how do we connect with him through reconciliation? Number two, number three, why does it matter? Go back up to verse nine, and I'll tell you why I took this a little backwards today. All right. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have, present tense, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. When Paul prayed this prayer, and this is a great prayer, if you ever really struggle with knowing what to pray at times, our, first of all, our prayer calendars are out in the foyer. Grab one of those prayer calendars. We've got a scripture verse for every single day. Every single month they come out with us. The prayer team does a great job doing that. If you ever really struggle with just what to pray, just go to these letters and read these prayers. Pray these prayers to God and allow them to sink down and, and meditate and think upon them and ask God to do this work. See, Paul knew something that was true in the first century that's also true for us today in the 21st century. Even though believers are reconciled to God, to the Father, through Christ's work on the cross, we have this natural tendency, this bend, to turning away from God and all of a sudden turning back to self. In other words, at some point in the past, we believed that Jesus was enough for us for our salvation, for our good, and for God's glory. But later on, we don't believe that he's enough to transform our hearts as we walk with him. There's information about Christ in our head, but sometimes it doesn't transfer down to application in the heart. And so Paul's deepest desire, his heartfelt hope, his powerful prayer, is not that Aunt Beth would get out of the hospital and Uncle Ted would get that job that he was offered last week. It's not the things that we so often pray for. And listen, I'm not telling you not to pray for those things. Those are great and good things to pray for. This entire prayer is centered on two things. The Apostle Paul wants believers to pray regularly and desperately for a gospel-centered knowledge of Christ that leads to a Christ-centered transformation of your life. These two things that Paul focuses on the most are a knowledge of Christ— that leads to transformation by Christ. And so I want to end just by giving you three applications, or a couple applications of this prayer, a couple takeaways that we can have as we think about our Christian life with the Lord and with each other. Number one, Christian identity is built on Christ awareness before self-awareness. When we are building a strong identity in Christ, understanding who we are in Christ and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, a Christ awareness supersedes and is a priority and comes before even our very own self-awareness. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul prays that believers would be filled 
with the knowledge of God's will. And the second that we read that, we automatically think, Lord, give me an understanding to know whether or not I should take this job. Lord, will you conform, confirm if I should marry this girl or not marry this girl? God, are you, are you calling us to have babies or not have babies? Are you calling us to pick up and move to Tulsa or not move to Tulsa? We always think about these individual, these specific things that are right in front of us. Lord, help us to know exactly your will. But I want you to notice here, Paul writes about God's will in general, not specific, with two qualities that come along with it. When we pray according to the knowledge of God's will, we are praying with all spiritual wisdom and we are praying for understanding in those things. What Paul has in mind here is not some particular or specific direction for your life. Rather, what he has in mind is a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ to influence all of those decisions that you're going to make. The Bible is not going to tell you if you should make one decision over another as long as both of those decisions don't lead you into sin. It's going to give you freedom to walk by faith and make decisions with the wisdom that you have from God's Word and the understanding of who Jesus is what he's done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he will do for you in the future. Paul didn't pray, Lord, give me some wisdom to do this or to do that. He continually prays for the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and all understanding. His prayer is for believers to discern the truth. And when you know the truth, then to walk that truth out with the decisions that you're making on a daily basis. It means that your identity is shaped more by what Christ has already revealed about himself and the truth of the gospel than the specific choices that remain concealed that we don't know about and those steps to take in the future. What has is, what is God revealed about Christ that should influence all of our decisions and all of the situations that we come into in life? Look down at verse 13. He has revealed that Christ has delivered us past tense from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, that you are no longer walking in the dark, but you now have the light of the son of Jesus Christ, that you are actually no, no longer in the realm of death and spiritual darkness, but because of what Christ has done for you, if you are a believer, now you are walking in the realm and the kingdom of God. And so we seek ye first what? His kingdom. And all of these other things will be added to us, right? All the other things in the context of, of Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6, where we read that awesome prayer from the Lord. He's also revealed, verse 14, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption. We've been set free from the power, from the shackles of sin. One day we will be set free from the presence of sin in our life, but we no longer have to succumb to sin because Christ has defeated sin definitively on the cross. And once and for all, when he comes back to rule and reign forever. Number one, as we apply this, our Christian identity is built on a Christ awareness before it is built on self-awareness. Number two, beware of the thought that Christ is good, just not good enough. Beware of the thought that Christ is good, just not good enough for what you need and what situation that you're going through. In verse 10, Paul gives us a goal or a desired result 
of a knowledge of his will with spiritual wisdom and understanding. The goal, the result, is that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, Paul wants us to know Christ so well that our lives would be worthy of him on a day-to-day, step-by-step, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis. What does a worthy life look like? I'm glad you asked that question. I want you to pay attention to four participles as it comes after it. Number one, what does a worthy life look like as we walk with, the, walk with the Lord on a daily basis, making choices, understanding who he is, and growing in the knowledge of God? It looks like this, that we would be pleasing, first participle, pleasing to the Lord. We would make decisions and actions that are pleasing to him based on what he has revealed to us in Scripture. Number two, it means that our lives would bear fruit present tense, always bearing fruit, bearing fruit for the kingdom of God, exhibiting the fruits of the Holy Spirit as we walk, as the things, the relationships that we have grow and multiply our witness as we evangelize and use our lives on mission with God, that that would bear fruit. It means, number three, that we are increasing in the knowledge of God. That what you know today is not sufficient for the rest of your life, but you continue to grow and understand who is this person that has redeemed me and set me free from sin? What are the depths of the truth of the gospel that I need to grow in and learn more about? Number four, it means that we are being strengthened on a daily basis. The goal and aim of your life is not to be a people pleaser. It is to fear the Lord more than you fear anyone or anything else. And let me me point out one final thing. Let me ask you one final question here in the text. Verse 11 has three different words for strength, three different Greek words for strength. Being strengthened is a participle. All power is a different Greek word for power. Number three, glorious might, third Greek word for power. What does spiritual strength look like for a person who is grounded and rooted in a strong identity in Christ? Physical strength can be seen on the outside. Spiritual strength is much harder, harder to discern, it's harder to see. The first indicator of spiritual strength for a Christian is endurance. Endurance is a Greek word, hupomeno. It means to remain under. That when you're under trials, suffering, difficult situations come about, a spiritually strong person is one who can stay under those things and endure them. Not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is in the strength that he gives to us on a daily basis. Second, spiritual strength looks like this, patience. And not just patience. Look at your text. Patience with what? Joy. I I can wait all day long. I can wait. To wait and to be joyful about waiting is a different story. The spiritual strong Christian with a a strong identity in Christ is one who can wait patiently with joy. Thirdly, spiritual strength is marked by a thankful heart. Spiritually strong people don't get bitter, they get better. And the way that they do that is with a heart of gratitude, not complaining, begrudging, or dragging on through things, but through all aspects of life, you are grateful and you are thankful. 
for what Christ has done, God has done for us, and what he's doing through us. We could spend the rest of our lives contemplating all the things in Colossians 1 that we have because of Christ and by the truth of the gospel. Your security is found in Christ. Your hope, your future is found in Christ. You are reconciled to God because of Christ. You are redeemed from sin, from the slave market of sin. He has purchased you with his blood on the cross through Christ. We are forgiven of all of our sins. You're going you're to see a passage in Colossians chapter 2 that says that through Christ, all sins are forgiven. That means our sins from the past, the sins that we commit in the present, and the sins that we will commit in the future. He has forgiven all of those sins. Your greatest security, your significance, your meaning, your purpose in life, it's all in Christ. Christ is sufficient. This is the resounding theme through Colossians chapter 1. Christ is enough for you. He is sufficient for you to live a godly life. His person, his power, his promises are enough. Don't look to all the things that the world is telling you to look for, for your significance and for your meaning in life. Go back to Colossians 1. Look to the truth of the gospel. Your greatest crises in life are not money, marriage, or midlife crises. Your greatest crisis in life is an identity crisis. And we need a strong identity that is rooted in the truth of the gospel to live a life that is pleasing to God, where we say on a daily basis, no matter what happens, Christ is enough. Jesus is enough. I've asked uh, Derek and Garrett to come up and play a closing song. We typically don't do this at TBC, but but we're going to do it this morning because this message in Colossians chapter 1 could be the most important message throughout the entire book. We're going to look at a lot of really great and better verses that, that doesn't give you a free pass not to come back throughout the rest of the series in Colossians. All right, I want you to come and, and listen more and, and read more verses about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ because we need this on a daily basis. We need this reminder. But more than anything else, the way that we are going to be rooted and grounded in our Christian life is to go back and understand the sufficiency of Christ, the depth of what he has done for us in the gospel. And so we're going to close with a closing song on that. Before they, these guys play, play let, me, uh, let me pray for us. Close it up. Father in heaven, um, again, we just thank you so much. We are so grateful for everything that we have because of Christ. We are so grateful for the truth of the gospel. You have separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. You've given us an identity. You've, you've allowed us to come into your family. You've allowed us to be called sons and daughters of the Father because of Calvary's cross. Father, I pray that um, as we think about Colossians 1, as we go through the sermon series, as we leave here today, we will think about the areas of our life where we are convinced that Christ is not enough, where we are looking to something else 
for satisfaction, for joy, contentment. Help us to identify those things, confess them back to you, Lord, and turn to you as the complete fulfillment, the ultimate, the only one that is sufficient for us. Help us to remember the resounding theme of Colossians. Apart from you, we have nothing that everything is found in who you are and what you've done for us. Bring us to a deeper, more intimate relationship with you. And we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.